You're listening to the Better Left Podcast. Today we've got Tammy Morales sitting down with us, and she has a lot of really great things to say. But if you like what you hear, make sure you check out our website, votefortammy.com, and check out our other episodes. We interviewed the wonderful and fantastic Melissa Hall, a candidate for District 6, activist and longtime policymaker, and the notorious Ari Hoffman, another candidate for District 2. Check them out and make sure to follow our coverage of the Seattle City Council race. Although I probably shouldn't but try to leave you all right, and now we are back in the Better Left Podcast studio. We are here with Tammy Morales, who is running for Seattle City Council District 2, correct? That's correct. Fantastic. And I'm also here with Jay, who is normally producing, but is now helping us interview uh, Tammy as well, because we're trying to keep it all even and balanced for everyone we interview. This is twice now you've let me out of the editing dungeon, so I'm really excited again. Oh, this yeah. is great. I know, and especially after having just come back from a two-week vac- vacation in Arizona. So I'm really excited to be sitting down with you, Tammy. This is a lot of fun. We've been following your campaign. and Thank you. I know a lot of our volunteers, like we have Andrew in the room tonight. He was working on your campaign. Woo, so. Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, we love that kid. So this is great. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. And then, because I'm learning never to forget, we've got a uh, corn doing production today. She's waving. So uh, everyone's here and we're kind of just ready to go. So we'll start pretty easy in like two or three minutes or just real quick, however long it takes you. What got you into politics? What got you here to this point? Oh, boy. I never, ever thought about running for office. Uh, but I have been living here in Seattle for 20 years. I've been living and uh, well, I've been working in South Seattle since day one. My first job was here working on affordable housing, working on community prevention through environmental design. I've worked on food security. And the things that I have been hearing in all the different neighborhoods in South Seattle and the Chinatown International District for many years is that uh, nobody's listening when we have great ideas, when we have creative solutions to some of our city problems, and we try to take those to City Hall, they sort of fall on deaf ears. And so I feel like we really need to build power for low-income communities, for people of color in District 2, and the community organizing work I've been doing for quite some time now, combined with my policy work and my experience as a city budget analyst, just make me think that I, I, the, the district needs somebody who will be a true advocate and who is excited about fighting for what we need. So... I figured, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and you challenged uh, Bruce Harrell previously, I did. who was the incumbent, is now stepping away. That's right? right. I ran against him four years ago for many of the same reasons that uh, folks felt like their ideas were being dismissed and that the real needs of the community were being ignored. And I got really close, came within 344 votes, but who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, decided I... Go for it again. Awesome. I actually lived in D2 when you ran and I actually voted for you in that Well, thank that you year. very much. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so I, just to, as a person, what do you do for fun when you're not campaigning, when you want to unwind, do something fun, do something interesting? What do you do? Oh, boy. Well, I've got three kids. Ah, so wow. the times that I can do something for myself are few <laughs> and far between. But we, we have a great time as a family. We do a lot of bike riding. We try to go camping in the summertime, for example, you know, hang out. Uh, my kids are into music. I would love to say I'm a musician. I can sing. I got a little game singing. Nice. All right. But my many attempts to try to play guitar have fallen flat. So, <laughs> so. If you win, you're going to go to karaoke with us, right? Oh, sure. <laughs> Happy to do that. I have to say I'm a little nervous about Candidate Survivor because I 
have no friggin' idea what I'm going to do. <laughs> My daughter suggested I cook, but I don't think I can do anything in three minutes on stage. Oh, wow. And then for anyone that's listening that doesn't know, what is Candidate Survivor? Candidate Survivor is a literally a talent show of candidates. It's hosted by Washington Bus. It might be uh, hosted by a few other organizations this year, but they host an event. It's at uh, gosh, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know where it's going to be. August 21st. And candidates have a few minutes to get up and show their stuff. That's awesome. I think that's a really cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they would have had you do that when you were running, Sarah. Can you I know. imagine? <laughs> I would have had so much fun with that. I don't know what I would have done either, though, honestly. I would hope karaoke. You know, <laughs> imagine you challenging. I like to sing, too. So. There we go. Imagine. Um, Imagine you challenging Adam to like a dance off or a sing off. A karaoke off. That's what I would absolutely challenge him to. Walk off. So we do a lot of this in Seattle. We do a lot of eating. Generally, actually, in life, I do a lot of eating. If you had to pick one place in district, preferably, but out of district, also acceptable, uh, where is your favorite place to eat? Only one place? Oh, boy. Oh, you can list two. Okay. Uh, Well, you can't pick. I get it. I know. Well, (laughs) we go to Los Dinos quite a bit. Uh, which is at Othello and Rainier. I'm from Texas originally. They have the best Tex-Mex in the city, in my opinion. Uh, So I love that. And then um, my kids, well, we all love pho. So I don't know how we're going to pick a pho place. (laughs) I know the feeling. Pho (laughs) is delicious, especially given the weather here in Seattle. Like nothing is better on a rainy, cold day than a hot steaming bowl of noodles. Yes. I love that. That's, we do that all the time. But we, we, get it to our house through DoorDash because we're too lazy to actually go out and get it. <laughs> Little pro tip, uh, make sure you tip your DoorDashers in cash though because DoorDash is only paying them a minimum if you exceed their minimum. It's like a dollar plus whatever your tip is. So. Yes, we learned that Good because we're ethical, lazy people. <laughs> so I guess we'll kind of jump into some stuff. I want to, sure. uh, we, we've done this with every candidate, any headline that's popped up, we've asked them to come and talk about it from their own words. Um, so we know right way back, I think it was like January 20th, they had the DSA forum for all the candidates getting endorsed. And then Stranger said that there was a, that uh, your campaign wasn't present. And so we're trying to find out what happened from you directly. Well, thank you for that question. Uh, so I joined DSA back in... October, November, uh, literally the afternoon that I heard Nancy Pelosi say that the progressive wing of the party was not in ascendancy. And I thought, well, there's one way to show that it is, and that's by increasing membership of DSA. So I joined, uh, and also to learn more about the platform. And I have not been active. Um, The reason, well, because I'm running a campaign and that takes a lot of time. What? (laughs) I know, I know, crazy. Uh, But honestly, the reason I did not go to that particular event was because um, I had asked, I I was new, I was trying to learn more about the organization. And I had asked before committing to go for information about how many D2 members there were. And also for a little bit of information about how many people of color are members. Um, And I was pretty clear, I felt that I did not want to be presented as a slate of socialist candidates. because I wasn't ready to make that statement. And I, I didn't get the information I had asked for. And I just felt like, um, you know, the word had been out. My, my picture was on posters before I got the information that I had been seeking. And I honestly just felt like it was a little bit of, um, 
I just wasn't happy with that, the way that okay. went down. And so I decided that I was not going to participate because I wasn't going to participate in that way. Okay, that makes sense. And I think it's important to own that kind of stuff, too. I think that's incredibly important. It's critical. Um, I mean, did you have anything you want to add, Jay, or no? No, I think that's really important. Um, obviously, I'm actually, I think, one of the few people in this room who's not a member of BSA. And mm-hmm. Not for any particular reason. I believe in the work. I just... You're just an anarchist. I get it. <laughs> no, I think it's important. She doesn't believe I, in government at all. So think, <laughs> uh, I'm not that level of libertarian, and I'm not right. even a libertarian. Uh, why not even say a that? A little tarian. A little tarian. <laughs> a little tarian. Yeah. No, I think it's good. I think it's a really good comment. Um, I like that perspective. And I will say, you know, this this campaign is centered on racial equity. That's what this is about for me because of the district and because of who I hope to represent. And so that was my first question, and. And continues to be my first, my, my question, right? Um, my accountability, if I'm elected, is to the people of this district. And if they're not reflected in the membership of that organization, then, uh, then that, you know, I am accountable to the people who elect me. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that I don't respect the work and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the platform, but the people who live in this district are going to be my priority. So... Who, uh, I guess we're going to jump into some general questions, really. And this is the one that I love to ask. I ask this of everybody who comes in because I think it's really cool. Uh, everyone has such a the, – the breadth of answers I get to this question is really neat. So what do you think the role of government is? I would say the role of government is really to protect the most vulnerable in our communities. Um, and, again, the reason I'm running is because I feel like in this – time, especially right now when we have, uh, you know, sort of this corporate takeover of our city, it is the role of government to step in and intervene when uh, the market is not protecting people. And, and that's, you know, why I'm running, because I do think that building power for people in this community is about building power so that they can access the resources that they need, given that the markets in our city are not providing it for them. And government needs to play a role in helping that happen by stepping in and providing access to housing, access to, um, you know, health care, transportation that people can afford that gets them to work and to the other places that they need to be. Um, so that's, that is, in my opinion, that's the role of government, local government especially. Awesome. And then, I, so one of the things I actually read on your platform, or I think it was a response to a questionnaire in Seattle Times, uh, you talked about how, as a city councilwoman, you believe that we should be divesting ourselves from Puget Sound Energy, or PSE, as it's known colloquially, and uh, that the city should take ownership of things like public utilities. And do, is this a thing that you think should be general all across the nation, that all utilities should be um, made public? They should all be public utilities and there shouldn't be private entities like PSE that are involved in the utility system? Or um, I think the problem there is that we, you know, we if we're trying to move as a, as a country, move away from fossil fuels, um, then we need to make sure that the way we invest public resources supports that. Um, we have to move our, trans- our, our infrastructure toward, you know, away from the fossil fuel industry. And I think that the, re- the fact that they rely still um, heavily on fossil fuel for heating and is is the problem. Uh, so I think that if we are able to move away from that, if we're able to invest and build, invest in a public utility, that that is, gives us more control over the way those resources are used. Awesome. And for, for context, all of us are like, yes, we do need publicly owned utilities and PSE and I do not get along and we're not friends. So <laughs> I just want to clarify one thing. So you say if we invest in public utilities, what does that mean to you? 
uh, it means that we invest in infrastructure. We invest in uh, job training for people who need to shift gears and uh, you know move away from the kind of uh, fossil fuel dependent infrastructure that we have. It means investing in switching to renewable infrastructure. So there's throughout the supply chain, I guess you could say, um, there will be there will be changes needed, and the people who work in those industries also need retraining. So that's part of what that means. Well, I think that was a great answer, Tammy. I appreciate you providing that for us. Uh, personally, I'm of the belief that we should be democratizing, is the way I like to call it, democratizing a lot of these utilities that we all rely on, things like the internet nowadays, right? right. Uh, I think you do support a public, or uh, I mean, yeah, a public yeah. broadband, yeah. So absolutely. I think that's great and something that I absolutely support too, yeah. because then we can guarantee free speech to people, right? We can guarantee that things like net neutrality aren't getting in. So, Well, not only that, but so many of our uh, lives depend on access to the internet. You know, we've got students who are applying to college at the local library, people applying for jobs at the library, and they can't finish those processes because their time runs out or they can't print things off or the, or, you know, they just, there are so many barriers for low income people when it comes to accessing the internet and what it literally means for their ability to run their lives that it, I, I think it's shameful that we are in the rich, one of the richest cities in the world um, with the largest tech companies in the world. And we don't have municipal broadband. Yeah, I'm with you on it. 100%. 100%. We're big nerds and we uh, game a lot. So we're also like, everyone should have the ability to play games on the internet. <laughs> That's how I feel. It's good. <laughs> Look how I grew up, Sarah. Look, I mean, honestly. Look, and just because somebody is low income or working class, you know, time to unwind and time to take care of your mental health and have fun is essential. And like, oh, yeah. if how you do that is through playing a video game, get online and you play that Call of Duty or Fortnite or whatever is the cool game that I should be saying right now. That's what you do. <laughs> and that's, I think that's amazing i think people taking time for themselves is important and empowering them to use the internet to do that is important well, and that also <laughs> assumes that they have the luxury of taking time right and mm -hmm. so many people like one job is not enough to pay the bills and so before they can get to the point where they can play Fortnite, they need to be able to pay their other bills and pay for school and health care and rent and food and help you know all of the things that they need and so that's that's what I'm hoping to help. That's the struggle. Facilitate. Oh, yeah. Especially in D2. I, I have a deep love for D2 because I lived here and it, they were amazing. It, like the whole constituency was just so amazing during my campaign. They're awesome. So I love your district. I'm super biased. So, <laughs> okay. So I want to move on to something that is also a necessity and has been a big part of your campaign that we've been talking about, which is housing. Yep. Um, so I want to start with a particular question. So, back during your interview with a stranger in January, you made a comment that you weren't a big fan. Oh, don't worry, I'll situate it for you. I see your face. Uh, you made a comment that you weren't a big fan of the MHA's wide-scale upzoning. Can you clarify that? Yeah, it's it's a big fucking mess is what it is. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how in the weeds you want to get. the. So this whole housing thing started several years ago, right? Four or five years ago when HALA was being uh, discussed and negotiated. And um, the original intent with housing regulation uh, was really around inclusionary zoning, right? So the idea was not to give developers an option of chipping into a pot of money or building units that are affordable to low-income folks. It was, if you're going to build something, you, you will include 5%, 10% of your units as affordable for low-income folks. Um, that got grand bargained away by the former mayor, um, which 
created this idea of um, of the option of pitching into a, a pot of money or uh, or building. Hardly anybody is actually building the units, which is part of why we still have a housing crisis. We do have a big pot of money, I think, well, $13 million the last time I saw it, I think. Um, and eventually that will go toward creating affordable housing, but we could have had it now. We could have, the, the, the challenge I have with MHA is that it was never intended to be an anti-displacement strategy. It was always intended to be this sort of trickle-down housing affordability strategy. So that was my first issue with it. Um, the fact that it got tied to zoning, rezoning, is a separate set of challenges. Um, I work at Rainier Beach Action Coalition. And as soon as MHA passed, so we are trying to promote community-driven development projects. Um, so projects that are identified by neighbors in their neighborhood plan that prioritize employment centers, employ uh, pri prioritize access to healthy food. Um, and our idea in the Rainier Beach neighborhood was to build a food innovation center. And so we've been looking for land in Rainier Beach for five years so that we could build the project that our community identified as a priority. Can I ask one question? What is a food innovation center? So that is uh, basically like an incubation uh, provides uh, small scale food processing space, kitchen space, storage, cold storage space. So it it's it is a missing piece of the food system infrastructure that keeps small farmers in our state from accessing small bits, um, which I'm happy to talk to you about later. <laughs> no, I love this. I, lo I love getting into the weeds, and we got yeah. we got some time to talk. We're about a weedsy podcast. Stuff. Yeah. So. <laughs> So the idea is that it's it is uh, both an employment center, which is a priority in Rainier Beach because we have high unemployment. It also addresses the need for fresh access to fresh, healthy food because uh, Rainier Beach has food insecurity issues. And then it also is a is an opportunity for job training and by employing people in these different food sectors. So, but the point is that we were looking for land to build that thing, and there is there were several plots of land near the Rainier Beach Light Rail Station that we were looking at that we were able to afford. We had actually made offers on a couple of them. Uh, and as soon as MHA passed and the potential for upzoning happened in our neighborhood, all the prices flipped, like everything doubled. And the spec speculation just on the mere possibility of increased zoning pushed out our project. Um, and so I say all of that be to say that while I don't disagree with the need to upzone, I, I think we need to get rid of single family zoning. I think we need apartments and garage apartments and middle income, middle, whatever they call it, uh, missing middle, you know, 10, 20 unit apartment buildings. We need all of that. But the way they did that rezoning had a really terrible impact on community based organizations' ability to drive the kind of development that they want to see that their communities had already prioritized. And that happened because of the speculation that came uh, as a result of MHA. That's good. That was really long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no. no, it's really good because actually one of the things that I was thinking about when I read that was, okay, well, if you don't support upzoning, and that's kind of how it came across in that interview, was, well, how are you ever going to get to affordable housing and those kind of things, which is a real issue, especially in district too. And so, and so we, you know, the, the priority at Rainier Beach, we do want housing. We do want uh, to increase density and we need an employment center in the district, in the, in the neighborhood. Um, and we can have both, 
But now that we can't afford any land around our office, that's going to be really hard. Yeah. So what would you say for affordable housing? I don't want to say, what do you think the solution is? Because everyone's like, it's my one idea that's going to get us there. But what? how do you think we start the process of solving this issue, specifically in D2, if that works for you, or overall as a whole as a city? Yeah, I think, uh, well, we need to build much faster. We are not keeping up with the pace. The pace of production is not keeping up with the need. There are ways to do that, including uh, making it easier to permit apartment buildings if they meet our stated goals around addressing affordability and and if they address our uh, anti-displacement strategies. Um, so making it easier to permit because holding land for months and months is really expensive and that drives up the cost of production. So, uh, so that's one thing. I think any city surplus land should just go for housing. I don't know why the Mercer mega block was being sold off to the highest bidder. There's a giant hole across the street from City Hall that's been there for 10 years now. I'm not sure what's happening there either. But these are uh, parcel, uh, you know, the Charles Street project near, uh, in the CID uh, is where the uh, city's, some portion of the city's fleet is being stored right now. And that property is available. So I think those kinds of properties uh, are important assets that should be handed over to the community to develop into housing and whatever other services, childcare, grocery stores, employment centers are needed. So there are lots of things we can do to increase the production of housing and make sure that particularly that uh, low-income folks have access. Okay, fantastic. And I mean, one of the things we talked about too a lot, especially because uh, Councilwoman Sawant has talked about this for a million years, um, rent control. And I know you've mentioned in the past, you said that you do think we could benefit from rent control. Um, so I, I talking about benefiting from rent control, would you say that you are, you are a supporter of rent control? So that's a measure yeah, you get I behind? I think we need to, uh, well, not just residential either. I think we also need commercial rent control. Um, and it can be tied to the consumer price index. You know, a part of the challenge is that for commercial properties, I've been talking to a lot of small businesses around here, uh, commercial properties can go up 15, 20, 50 percent. And obviously, if you're a small business, you can't stay. Uh, so, and the same thing is happening to residents. You know, we know that people are getting evicted because their rent is doubling, or you know, their building gets sold. And so, uh, so the right of first return in that instance, I think, is important. And then also just making sure that we are capping the rate at which rent is increasing is really important. And just for our listeners, can you clarify what you mean by right of first return? Not a lot of people know that term. So if a project, if a building gets sold and the intention is to redevelop it, I think it's important, particularly if it's a low-income building or a building that is housing uh, low-income folks, that they be allowed to return to whatever uh, is built in its stead. Um, and at the same rate, rental rate, right? So that they are not pushed out. Because the, the key for me is really anti-displacement and making sure that people stop getting pushed out of the city. So it's like dibs. First dibs. Yeah. First, first, first dibs. First dibs. First dibs. <laughs> yeah, that's like the TLDR version. <laughs> I, I, I should have just said it that way. Yeah, it's dibs. Yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think that's a good idea. I don't think anyone has mentioned actually rent control in a commercial capacity too. I know in um, SeaTac, I know it's just a burb of Seattle, but um, SeaTac had a lot of issues with a lot of local residents, yep. the immigrant community that came and built up these storefronts. They yep. made it valuable. And then the city was like, okay, bye. 
and they kicked him out. And they just all they did was they overpriced him and they just they priced him out of their own businesses in the exact community center that they built up. And so I think that's the kind of thing that's happening in D2 as well. Yeah. In a lot of these areas, their landlords are pushing up a lot of rents. We're seeing a lot of businesses shutter. Like, I'll go to go get something from a place that was there. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's not there anymore. anymore. Same story. All of them have it, which is the rent is skyrocketing. And I actually worked with several of those businesses in SeaTac in former life um, when I had a consulting firm called Urban Food Link, working on food security and helping many of those businesses to sell fresh, healthy produce to their community that was culturally appropriate. Uh, and so it is mind boggling to me that after the county invested the money to keep those businesses there and help them succeed, the city is now coming through and pushing them out. It's just... Mm-hmm. That's why we are deeply involved in a lot of those local elections in SeaTac. I'm actually uh, on the board for the Working Families Party, and we've been doing a lot of work with uh, Sanayat and, and Tekele and helping them get, because they're actual members of the community, and try to push out some folks on the city council down in SeaTac. So if you're listening, definitely go support Sanayat and Tekele. <laughs> Just throw it out there. Uh, can we take a quick brain break for a second? No. Yes. What is the last thing you watched on television? That you liked? Yeah, that you liked. Because <laughs> that, that's a bit, yeah, you have to differentiate. Um, so I usually only watch with my daughter. Are we on, are we recording? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> she was watching some show about, um, like, supersized pets. So it was a show about people who have, like, a cat that weighs 40 pounds or a giant lizard like a big Komodo dragon sort of looking thing. That is wild. That's the kind of TV I turn on for my... I have a dog with high anxiety. And like one of the things people said was turn on the TV and leave him. And I spend so much time trying to find TV for him to watch. And so that actually sounds like something I'd turn it on for my dog. Really, there was a whippet <laughs> who had some weird uh, gen- genetic mutation that gave him double muscles. So he looked like an Incredible Hulk whippet. Whoa. It was very weird. That's a buff ass whippet. <laughs> I love this. I follow a Twitter called Chonky Animals, and so I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> Jay's I'm sold. In. This. Yeah, we like to uh, occasionally just take a break in the middle of our interviews and just talk about stuff that's not relevant. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess that's a that's a wonderful segue talking about animals because animals on the planet will die without this next question. Um, so, you talk about the Seattle Green New Deal on your platform, which I, of course, love. Um, fun fact: when it was first starting out, I was actually I helped author the first iteration that ever existed Excellent. of it. So I'm very proud of myself. So this is near and dear to my heart. Um, so the Seattle Green New Deal, deal is public your po- uh, as part of your policy platform. So when we talk about funding the Green New Deal, um, what is your speculative theory on how we fund that Green New Deal? And what does a Green New Deal in Seattle look like to you? Sure. So I will say that um, this is not necessarily my area of expertise. I come to this uh, understanding of how we address climate change through my work as a planner. I'm trained as a planner. And so the work that I've been doing is around um, affordable housing, around increasing density so that we limit urban sprawl, around addressing transit issues so that we stop pushing people out who have to commute back in. And so that's the lens that I'm bringing to this and the work that I am feel equipped to do in this in this realm is to make sure that we are investing in uh, in building walkable neighborhoods, communities that can thrive and where people can stay in place without getting pushed out. Um, and I think in terms of the uh, sort of the infrastructure for the city, it also means that we electrify uh, electrify the bus fleets, that we invest in mass 
transit, that we build out the bike network, that we do what we can to create alternative modes of transportation around the city. If our uh, carbon emissions are caused 50% by passenger vehicles, but we're not actually building the alternative ways of getting around for people, then we're not actually doing anything to try to address that or to meet our climate action plan goals. So in my mind, the way we start to invest in that, at least, is to uh, invest in transit and green building, green commercial building, uh, and making sure that folks stop getting pushed out of the city. Awesome. And then I know we talk a lot about the my favorite question, which is the how do you pay for it question. So how do you so in order to invest in infrastructure, what best what are the avenues that you see forward to be able to pour that money into infrastructure, which I totally agree with you. I think we need to do so. Well, we had this great conversation a couple of years ago about um, progressive revenue in the city. And uh, it went great until it didn't. So <laughs> I think we have to have that conversation again. We have to talk about how we are going to fund things. I, you know, ideally, the state would address the issue of an income tax. They seem disinclined to do that right now. They got really close this last session with a capital gains tax, but that didn't pass either. And so I think that, you know, in lieu of the fact that the state isn't willing to take this on, we have to do something at the city. And we're going to have to have this conversation again. I do think that it is incumbent upon the corporations in the city who benefit from the investment made in this community to pay back by paying some taxes. Um, and so I do think that, that is one thing we can do. We've been, our campaign has been talking about maybe a 1% payroll tax to start investing, uh, to start raising the kind of revenue that we need to address all of these issues. I don't know that that one tax is going to be sufficient. You know, we have also talked about impact fees to invest better in infrastructure. We've talked about um, capital gains tax or high income earner taxes in the city. We did pass a citywide income tax three years ago. It's now an appeal. I don't know where that appeal is, I'll be honest. (laughs) But I do think that we're going to have to keep talking about it. Uh, because we we need some progressive revenue in this city. Yep, it is it is not okay for working families to bear the brunt of what it takes to invest in a, in a growing city like ours. I'm a deep tax nerd. I like I do tax and accounting data anal- analysis and research for like a living, <laughs> and I actually like it. So it kind of blows people's minds a little bit. I love talking about Washington's taxation system. So to for people that are listening, I've talked about this before. We have in Washington State, although we are an incredibly progressive state with progressives everywhere, we actually have the most regressive taxation system in the entire country. Um, Alabama has a more progressive taxation system than we do. It, yeah, I know, right? When you put it in that perspective, it's like, oh, no. <laughs> um, I mean, Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell is from, is more progressive in their taxa- taxation system than we are. It's wild to think about. And so this is when we sit on this podcast, we always try to relate a lot of this small scale stuff back to big scale stuff. But this is the small scale relating back to the big scale. Like this is why city the city matters. The city passed an income tax and now it's going to the state for review by the su- state Supreme Court. And then we're going to be able to amend our constitution, hopefully, uh, and add in a progressive income tax, which will change the way our entire state functions and is funded and will give us a lot of real opportunities as progressives. And then that can translate later into a, a federal tax adjustment where corporations are actually paying more and the wealthy are now paying more in federal taxes than working class folks. So this is all tied together. If you can get a, a progressive income tax in your state that places an emphasis on high income earners and on uh, high revenue corporations that actually puts them in charge of paying back the money that they take from the community by using the community, then we can do it at a federal level. But we can go state by state. We talk about it with healthcare. Go 
go state by state with healthcare, go state by state with taxes. And everyone thinks taxes are boring. And let me tell you something, they are, but <laughs> they are also very important. So <laughs> get Indeed. nerdy about your taxes. So you support like a carbon tax and if Seattle were to pass one on corporations yeah. inside the city. Yeah, that would be great. And then uh, the infamous, the ever infamous vote about the Amazon head tax. It sounds like you would have been a supporter of that or. Yeah, I was actually. So I have been a part of the Trump proof coalition that was uh, instrumental in helping pass the citywide income tax. And then when that went into appeal, uh, I was also part of the. Um, Housing for All Coalition that was working on the employee hours tax. So I had applied to join the Progressive Revenue Task Force, but I was not accepted. <laughs> ah, yes. That happens occasionally in our city. Um, and we talked a little bit about racial diversity and things like that, but I think we also need to talk about um, LGBTQIA diversity as well. So uh, your policy page, I know you actually have one that talks about LGBTQIA rights, which is great. Um, and yeah, we're going to talk about that. It, it states that you'd like to increase protections for LGBTQIA folks and then increase the penalties against anybody that discriminates against them. Can you expand a little bit on this and like what that means or what that looks like to you? Yeah, I think so. I sit on the Seattle Human Rights Commission. We do a lot of work in sort of collaboration with the LGBTQ Commission and the Women's Commission, Immigrant and Refugee Commission, um, and the Disability Commission. We've been working for a while now on, uh, for example, on a resolution that we're trying to get through the city for defending human rights defenders. Um, there are, particularly in the LGBTQ community, folks who are advocating for that community who are themselves at risk. Often um, they're threatened, they are cyber stalked, they are, you know, harassed online and doxxed. And so uh, because they're the response when they try to report this is very often we don't have capacity, they're really at risk. Um, there is a particular individual who's actually living in Sweden now because uh, she can't get any kind of response from our local law enforcement. And so what we're trying to do is say that um, if you are, uh, you know, th that these folks deserve protection and they need, because they are a protected class, they need to have additional protection. Now, I know that there was a recent uh, bill that a council member tried to pass um, related to hate crimes that was problematic. Um, for, for, for different reasons. But I think the general idea is that we need to make sure folks are protected. And if it's not going to be a resolution like that, then at least what we need to do is work with our law enforcement to say that when somebody is reporting something, um, we need to make sure that we're investigating. So I want to, I want to clarify, there's a couple of things that I'm just kind of curious on how you're balancing them. So yeah. You had the Seattle Times questionnaire recently where they asked you, do you support adding more police? And in that questionnaire, you said no. But you're talking a little bit about things like we need to increase. Or it didn't sound like you said increased law enforcement, but it seems like we're kind of treading it's, this yeah, line. Yeah, it is. And it is. Um, so I don't think we need to add police for this purpose. I do think that what we need to do is reprioritize some of the things that are um deemed worthy of investigation. Um, when somebody has been doxxed, when somebody's being cyber stalked, when somebody is literally having to protect themselves and move every few months because she's worried of, for her safety, that's an issue. And I don't think it can be, can be dismissed. Um, and so I don't think that means necessarily that we add new, new officers, 
but it does mean that the way that we, um, I don't know what the law enforcement term is, triage, you know, what gets what gets attention needs to be shifted around a little bit. Okay. So what does that look like? Do you have an opinion on that today? Like if, what would you say, like, how would we shift that responsibility or how would we shift it to in order to free officers up in order to actually do that? We could take them off of the sweeps beat, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, given that that is proven to be ineffective and uh, the Ninth Circuit says, unconstitutional. Um, I think there are other ways that we could be spending those resources that actually protect people who are, um, who are, whose safety is at risk. As somebody that was cyber stalked, actually, it is, it's very scary and it, you never know. And it makes you feel even in your own home, like the feeling you have, because that person came after you online at being online in your pajamas at home and then getting something like that, being stalked in that way, finding people popping up in forums, no matter how many times you block them and making threatening statements or vaguely threatening statements. Mm -hmm. It's really scary. And it does make you feel really unsafe in your own home. There was a night Jay and I were locking all the doors and we got our second dog because he barks really loud and he sounds really mean, but he's a giant baby. Um, He just sounds loud. (laughs) He'll run away from the danger, but he, uh, but that was part of it. And I mean, we locked every single door. We barricaded the bedroom when we went to sleep. I had trouble sleeping. It, it's a really scary experience for a person. So I want to expand on this a little bit because diversity includes lots of people, right? It's not just the LGBTQ folks. It's people of color. It's anybody who's in a marginalized community who may or may not even feel safe contacting the police. And there's exactly. a lot of communities like that. Um, on your platform, you talked about this idea. You say you want to establish guidelines on engagement with LGBTQ plus folks people of color and the differently abled, which I appreciate the use of language there. Uh, What does this mean? Like, can you provide examples? Sure. So I do think that, you know, whenever we are crafting policy, we have to make sure that those who are most impacted are going to be included in that. Um, So that's what I mean by that. There are uh, folks from across the spectrum of people who are in protected classes um, who as you said, are nervous about calling the police. They don't call the police because they know the history of police interactions uh, very often when when they show up at your door, when they show up in your community. And so, you know, that is not going to be the first priority, the first solution. Um, and I think bringing people together to have a conversation about what are the other resources that you need? What are the organizations in your community that are doing this work? that need better resources? How do you make sure that the staff at these community organizations uh, reflect your community and are trained in what it takes to provide the kind of service that you need? So I think this is really about setting community norms. It's about um, making sure that the organizations that are out there doing the work to protect people, to provide services, to connect them to other resources are themselves resourced enough to do that work and make sure our community members are protected. But none of that happens in an authentic way if the folks who are most impacted aren't included in those conversations and in crafting that policy. And my commitment is to make sure that they are included when that's happening. So I'm going to ask a couple clarifying questions. And so the piece of legislation you were talking about beforehand was introduced by Councilmember Herbold, right? With regard and it includes some really troubling stuff from it from our perspective. For example, making the victims of crimes actually have to speak with and confront their accuse the person they're accusing. That's real. That's a real piece of that was in the legislation. Legislation. That's why it was problematic. <laughs> I'm gonna guess. It sounds like you wouldn't support that, or do you? So I haven't read that piece. I am going to assume, give her the benefit of the doubt, um, 
I, when you're talking about uh, a victim of a crime confronting the the perpetrator, um, that isn't something that's done lightly. But that is part of a of a trauma informed approach called restorative justice, um, and it it's a real thing. And the the rationale behind it is that um, you know we've invested over the last thirty years. I don't know, $3 trillion in our criminal justice system, building jails, probation officers, hiring police, criminal courts, all of that has done real damage to our communities. Um, The way that we unwind ourselves from that is not by continuing punitive measures and building youth jails and, you know, and continuing down the path of a, a mass incarceration model. But it's going to take time and it's going to take a real shift in the way we think about what the alternatives are. So restorative justice is one alternative to this sort of punitive approach. And it does mean that if the victims are interested in a restorative model, then they are offered the opportunity to meet with the perpetrator and have a real conversation. And it's it's really framed in this way of of an opportunity to heal everybody who was involved. It is not intended to be, uh, you know, sit down and confront somebody and, or be damned, you know, that's not the model. And that's not the intention. It is really meant to be part of this bigger transition to, uh, to a way of managing these kind of interactions that that can try to repair the harm that's done to everybody in the community. No, I, I, it's good. I, I, I appreciate that approach. You know, it was one of the things that we advocated for on our campaign very heavily was a restorative justice model. Uh, Sarah was very advanced on that, at least from this perspective. And so I think that was really good. Um, I will say I do have some concerns still about it, especially because like there are really violent people out there in the world and the Herbold's approach I didn't agree with because it didn't seem to be as nuanced as what you're presenting to me in this discussion. Right. And so I think that's the that's the important piece to make sure that everybody keeps in mind. And, you know, these sorts of resolutions and and ordinances that are pushed through are very often done quickly without, as I said, without bringing in the people who would be most impacted by them. And that's why I think it is important that as these ideas are coming up and as you're trying to do the right thing and protect people that you have conversations with people who have been impacted and who will, or who would be impacted and understand from their perspective, you know, nothing is cut and dry. There Mm -hmm. will always be nuances to this legislation. And it's really important that you understand that or you just further the harm that's been done. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, one of the the things that we all need to keep in mind when we're talking about restorative justice is it's not the job of victims to educate their abusers. Exactly. It's just like it's not the job of communities of color to educate white communities. Exactly. It's the same thing. And so when we're talking about restorative justice, we need to make sure that we're not putting the onus of responsibility on the victims and that we're making sure that the victims are there for their own healing, not for the abuser's benefit. Yeah, I can only imagine. Imagine if you were, say, like, a person of color and you've been targeted by a KKK. Probably you should, yeah, or three the presenters or whatever. Yeah. I couldn't imagine ever having to be in names. that room with them. I mean, not to mention the people who engage in acts of sexual violence or violation of people's autonomy in that way. It's just, it's despicable to me. I couldn't imagine being in that position. I know I speak from a place of privilege though, being a white passing male, like I, and I'm a larger white passing male too. And so 
Just scary big passing mail. My yeah. passing mail. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I also think that that um, talking about this from the perspective of communities of color too. We so we're a we're a very diverse city, and I know the D two especially is very diverse. Of all of the districts, I think it is the most diverse one. Um, it's another the all of this area is a. I think in the ninth district total, we're a majority minority district, and then the district two is also a majority minority district, but it's in a much larger margin than the whole ninth congressional district. Um, so we are there's a, a huge immigrant population a lot of population a lot of communities of color in this area um seattle is a sanctuary city is this do you support seattle being a sanctuary city yeah of course okay and then there's recently i am very passionate about this part so uh alexandria ocasio-cortez recently called very rightly in my opinion called the the camps concentration camps is this a, a sentiment that you agree with do you feel that they're they are concentration camps or do you feel like it's something different entirely or we're definitely on the road to becoming concentration camps well, I don't know if they are or not, but they're disgusting and <laughs> there is no reason for them. Mm -hmm. um, I think, it, you know, it's appalling to me, the conditions. And, and we're just hearing it more in the last few days about the conditions that people are in there, children in there with no food and water or medical care and sleeping on the floors. And I'm from Texas, so I know what kind of heat we're talking about. Um, you know, I've got family in Laredo and and to know that there are there are families and children there. It's terrifying. Is um, just really disgusting. I'm extremely proud of our city for taking a bold stance on this and being a sanctuary city because these are these are people. They are people. At the end of the day, whatever you want to believe, wherever you're from, they're people. And yeah. to treat people that way is just absolutely despicable and abhorrent and i'm proud of us as a city that we came together and we're like nope not here mm -mm. yeah i think all the way down all through king county i think we're all sanctuary cities i think it's only i think even auburn i thought they would be the holdout for some reason but they're i think they are too but i think you know all of king county managed to do it i do think it's important to point out one thing here and that is even in washington though we're not perfect right we have mm -hmm. an ice detention center right there in tacoma it's a thing that we rallied against stood outside and bought pizza for all the volunteers that were doing campouts there yeah, well it, and there's you know there are legal funds here that need support um so i think you know i i donated to the texas civil rights project that is supporting the the um families that are down there trying to get access to our court system um but there are there are programs here as well that are trying to help the families at northwest detention center and they need some they need some love uh Moving on to a topic that's equally as heavy, I think, here uh, in Rainier Beach, we're facing the building of a youth jail. And when I sat down and Sarah and I sat down with uh, one of your opponents, we asked him, do you support this? And he said, well, I need to see who's going to be being housed there. And I'm just going to tell you my response was, uh, it's young black men. Those are primarily going to be who are housed at that youth jail. Uh, how do you feel about the youth jail? Do you support it? Do you think city funds should be going toward it? Like, what's your stance on that? So the youth jail is being built in the central district. Yeah, D3, yeah. not D2. Yeah. But it's, and it's very intentional why it's there, right? Like this is, goes back to our history of redlining and racism and what we tell communities. So the thing about the youth jail is that uh, we could have stopped this many years ago when the city council had the ability to say no to the rezone that allowed it. Uh, Bruce Harrell was one of the council members who supported that rezone. And in our last campaign, when this came up, was saying over and over again, you know, 
that's no, that was not my decision. That's a county jail. That's a county facility. That we that was just a zoning issue for us. That was just land use, which is another reason why I think it is so important that our city council acknowledge that land use is the power that they have. Everything about the way that we zone and allow our neighborhoods to change and grow goes through land use, permitting, what we're allowing to be built, what we're allowing to be destroyed. And there, you know, there's a reason why that jail is in the central area, because when they built it originally, that was a very clear statement to the black community that this is what we think of you and and where we want you to be. Um, so the fact that it was allowed to be rebuilt there, I think, is deeply problematic. Uh, I don't agree with it. I've been I'm not an active part of the No Youth Jail Coalition, but I've been meeting with them for as a human rights commissioner uh, trying to figure out how we can stop it. It seems pretty clear that it's going to be built, but if there is any way to change the purpose of it, uh, you know, then I think we need to figure out how to do that. And I don't know if that's changing it into housing. I don't know if that's, you know, turning it into a temporary shelter for folks, but I don't think that putting our young people in jail serves this purpose, as we were talking about earlier, of restorative justice. You know, we need to really commit to transitioning away from a punitive way of dealing with young people. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And the reason it's such a big deal in uh, District 2 is because there is such a uh, it's such a large black population. And this is and the reality is, is even though it's being built in District 3, it's the youth of District 2 that are going to suffer. Absolutely. But this is where when we talk about about putting local legislation on a national scale. This is how nuanced and important it is for people to get involved at the city level and not even just state. Get involved in your city level. Uh, City, county, state, all of it matters because it is literally a zoning permit issue that allowed this to happen. It wasn't that they just bought the land and did it. It was city council zoning permits, which is city council jurisdiction. So if you ever think city council is not that important, think again. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. And uh, the youth jail, I mean, we've I was very strongly against it and remain strongly against it. I actually, for context, um, to kind of connect more of this national stuff and like this is how cities can learn from each other, everybody. Um, the, mid- the middle school I went to when I moved to Southern California in eighth grade was actually a youth jail that they converted into a middle school. So wow. it is entirely possible. The running joke was it had no windows, but that's OK. <laughs> uh, I still got an education <laughs> and we still converted it into a school and it was still better for the community than a youth jail. And if we've learned anything, they can be great defense points in the zombie apocalypse. Well, there you go. There we did it. Found (laughs) we found the repurposing. (laughs) You did it, Jay. Good for you. Um, so we're gonna. I have a couple quick questions. We only have a couple questions left. Um, so we're almost done. (laughs) So in the when we went and we do our we do a little bit of our research on people before they come into the studio, and that's you know what as you do. Um, and we read through the most recent Seattle Times questionnaire. I think they just published it today. Um, when I last checked my Apple News, it was like three hours ago. I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, so you talked about job creation in District 2. And so you fo- you focused primarily on facilitating apprenticeships through union jobs. But do you think that there's more that we can be doing, too, in addition to that? So I totally agree with you. I think we need to fund. I'd love to see these jail funds go to funding programs in high schools that would allow apprenticeships for juniors and seniors with union members in the trades, which is what we used to have many years ago, yep. um, all throughout public education. But do you think there's even more that we could be doing than just that? Sure. Well, I talked earlier about the work that we're trying to do at Rainier Beach, right? Because we know that 
people need jobs. Uh, we have a goal anyway of setting, creating this food innovation center, and that would provide employment for people to do small-scale food manufacturing, to do office work, to do uh, transportation, logistics, warehousing. There's all kinds of things that we could be doing if we commit to a local community economic development strategy. And I think that's one of the things that drives me crazy about the focus when we talk about business in this city is that everybody goes straight to Amazon and Microsoft and Boeing, but there are lots of small businesses that we could help grow. People are interested in creating maker spaces, so supporting entrepreneurs who are doing smaller scale manufacturing of goods and um, crafts. And, um, and we also could be supporting entry into the tech sector, entry into gaming. Um, but that requires an investment in our education system, too. So we have, you know, upstream a lot of work to do to make sure that our young people have the kind of quality education that allows them to take advantage of these jobs. You know, a lot of the a lot of the tech companies are pulling people in from outside the city and there's no reason that should be happening, especially given the salaries that some of these folks are making. Um, it's not okay that the jobs that our young people are, you know, sort of set up for are the warehouse jobs crappy warehouse jobs where there's poor working conditions and low pay when they should be the ones who are filling filling all of these uh, vacancies at assorted tech companies in the city. We won't name Amazon's name. It's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we also, uh, I, I think the job creation within the city itself is actually, it's there's a huge opportunity. Everyone thinks of cities and like, oh, you're limited to office jobs and like, yeah, Kinda, but at the same time, like you know, investing in things like trades. We talk about the trade shortage. Why aren't we investing in trades in our kids? And I think that mm -hmm. that's it's a really unique perspective on it because it's something I talked about a lot actually when talking about education. Um, and then you know, we got to ask questions in response to things that were said by uh, other folks that we've interviewed who are also running in your district, who we won't name. Uh, one of your opponents talks about a lot about. I'm using air quotes, but no one can see it. Rising crime in District 2, and the city as a whole. So much so he appeared in the uh, wonderful, contentious news piece of Seattle is dying. Um, sorry, I was a sneeze. Uh, how do you respond to this statement? So when he talks about that, when uh, this person says there's rising crime in District 2, there's crime all over the place. You go outside, crime. Go to your car, crime. Just crime everywhere. Um, how do you respond to that statement? And what do you feel is more, what do you feel is is the, what's really happening? So that's a great question. Uh, I will go back to Rainier Beach, where we have a program called A Beautiful Safe Place for Youth. Uh, it is a coalition of organizations that work on addressing just this issue. And we have a program called Corner Greeters, where we have young people, high school kids who go out after school and provide kind of safe passage to young people. It's a violence interruption program. It's a partnership with the community police. It's a partnership with Seattle Neighborhood Group. Over the last... I want to say five years, we've seen a 30% reduction in crime in the neighborhood. And I say that because, A, it's not true that there's a rise in crime. If you actually invest in community solutions to the problems that you see, you can, you can have a deep impact on your neighborhood. And this is important because, you know, the young people that I work with, most of whom are from Rainier Beach High School, uh, 
they don't, you know, they're proud of where they live. They're proud of their neighborhood, of the of the elders in the neighborhood. They're proud of their community, of the assets in our community. And they are tired of being told that their neighborhood is just some crappy place where, you know, where there's just a bunch of violence and crime. So I think it is a disservice to the people of our district to, you know, hone in on this one issue and say that that is reflective of everything that's happening in this district. It's just not true. And the fact is that crime is actually down over the last few years, um, at least in this one neighborhood. I can't speak to every neighborhood, but it is an important bit of information. And I know we talk a lot about uh, community relationships with police officers, especially in a district with such a large community of color base here in District 2. So when we talk about police accountability with communities and with regards to crime, um, what kind of programs do you want to see? How do you want to see police become more community oriented and less, um, I guess, violence oriented, if that (laughs) makes sense? Um, So I'm not a fan of the idea of hiring 200 more police officers. I think there are other things we could be doing with that money, like investing in restorative justice programs and community solutions to some of our problems. Um, I think that the police, you know, if we are, if we can move back to this, maybe this is naive, but move back to this sort of Mayberry police walking down the street and actually knowing people, having relationships with people, that could potentially be beneficial. I think the problem is that there is so little understanding of our community, it, it, it seems. You know, the, the police who are patrolling are in cars. They don't get out and talk to people. So that's problematic. The bigger question about police accountability, I think, is a crucial one because we all know that we've been under a consent decree for seven years We thought we were making progress, um, but Judge Robart, who is responsible for overseeing this, just recently said that, you know, in many ways we have made progress on the reforms that have been required, except for the issue of accountability. And the fact that the Police Officers Guild keeps pushing back every time there is an attempt to hold bad police officers accountable is deeply problematic. I think it would be go a long way toward building trust. With the community, if the good cops, and I'm sure there are many, would actually come out and say, yes, we need to hold the bad cops accountable. There is no reason why somebody who is a, a, you know, taxpayer funded public servant who's walking around with a weapon should not be held accountable if there's a problem. So I'm hopeful that the Community Police Commission continues to hold you know, their ground and say, you know, we're talking about communities of color and they deserve to have a voice in how this accountability conversation continues and they deserve justice. I think that that's a a, a big thing in the district is police accountability for sure and making sure that we're finding ways to do that. But you mentioned a, a ruling by a judge. Do you mind expanding a little bit for anyone that might not be familiar with what that means or what that is? So uh, so we're under consent decree since 2012. We've been under a consent decree where um, the the uh, judge, Jason Robard, Jason, right? I think so. <laughs> Feels right. Jay oh, Robard. Wait, that's, a, that's an actor. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Judge Robart uh, <laughs> is, is monitoring the consent decree. And there are, you know, there were dozens of things that the police department needed to do with regard to accountability, with regard to uh, uh, bias policing and racial profiling. 
And many of the things that have been in discussion for the last several years, he has ruled have been, we've made some progress on. But the thing that he keeps coming back to is the issue of accountability. And, you know, the, the fact that, for example, officers who are found to have some sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, sorry, I'm having a brain fart. <laughs> officers who have been found to mistreat somebody, for example, um, might get put on some sort of leave, but they still get paid. If there is an officer who has been accused of something, they sort of get a little extra time for managing how that information gets put out instead of being really transparent about what's happened. So there are many ways in which um, the effort to hold officers, hold, hold the department accountable are getting blocked by the police officers guild. And so, you know, we just... And we know this is a problem because just a few weeks ago, the police department's own report said that they arrest people of color more often than they arrest white people. I forget the percentage, you know, maybe five or 10% more often, but it is white people who have weapons on them more often. So people of color are getting stopped and frisked more often, even though they know that they're not the ones necessarily who are carrying weapons. And so the question becomes, why is that happening? And the department's response in the report was, gee, we don't know. Well, I can tell you why it's happening. Racial profiling, that's why it's happening. And so that's why the judge is saying, you might be there on some other steps on, on accountability. We're not there yet. And so we will continue to observe. And when we um when we talk about uh, so you made a comment earlier about good cops in the system stepping up and take and holding the plate. So when they choose to be police officers, they enter into what is inherently a racist system. How do you how do you encourage these people, or how would you how, what would be your vision for these people that don't buy into that racial component or want to change that racist component of an inherently racist system? What would be your advice to them, or how could they move within the police officers guild to try and change that in the city? Is there anything they could do? That is a great question. <laughs> You know, I will say that I think the 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 structure of the departments, the structure of the institution is such that it is just created to, you know, support this sort of white supremacist culture. And that's just a fact um, that is, you know, something that is going to be hard. It's hard to shift culture. I think that the the institution itself is problematic. And I and I do think that that's why we need to start looking at these restorative justice models, at community solutions, at other ways that we can approach uh, the way people operate in our community without relying so heavily on a punitive system. Now, if we're talking about violence and murder and assault, that's different. But if we're talking about young people, misdemeanors, we need to start moving away from that, from yeah. the way that we do that now. Kind of like loitering being a crime because really what it was is not loitering, it's standing while black. So, yeah. Yeah. So one cool follow-up question to all this is you may remember there was recently a word I like to use, quite the kerfluffle over mm. the- Is it kerfuffle or kerfluffle? It's kerfluffle now. Okay. Uh, over the police contract that recently got signed, there was a lot of people who were opposed to that despite- it passing, I think, nearly unanimously in the city council vote. I think Sawant was the only one who voted against it in the end mm -hmm. uh, because it didn't have enough accountability measures in it, right? In fact, they struck almost all of that from the legislation. How did you feel about that contract? Would you have voted for that? Yeah. Um, 
You know, I don't know. I don't know enough about how the city, what the city council's role is in that. I've actually talked to the community police commission since then to try to understand what kind of guidance does the city, do the city council members get? It's very secretive. My understanding is that like, they're not allowed to talk to technical experts about what these contracts mean. They're not allowed to it just seems really obscure and, and and opaque, I should say. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, I do agree, and I didn't personally sign on, but Rainier Beach Action Coalition signed on to the letter that was written by many different communities, uh, community organizations, asking that that contract not be signed because of the accountability issues. And you know, when I talk to folks about why that list of community organizations signed it. And I said, these are all communities of color, organizations that represent communities of color, led by people of color. There was a surprise like, oh, 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 yeah, you're right. You know, which just speaks back to the question about um, bias and this sort of white supremacy culture, right? We need to understand that the reason all these community organizations signed on opposing the contract was because they're the ones who are impacted by the bias policing that happens. And so they're the ones who have a real, uh, uh, a real interest in making sure that accountability is not just sort of tossed in as one thing that we're thinking of, but it's really important to them that those those principles be in there and that they're protected because they're the communities that are most impacted when those standards are not upheld. I think that's a good answer. Um, I have one more question to ask, if that's okay. Just one final one. Do you believe in an economic democracy as well as a social democracy? Do I believe that we can get there or do I believe that we're there already? Or should <laughs> we believe, have one? Should we have one? Should we have one? Yes. Yes, I think that we, you know, uh, so the, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, that is why I talk about building power. It's not just power for the sake of it. It's, it's so that we can shift economic power in the city because, uh, and, and hopefully eventually in this country, because we know that, you know, sort of the corporate Elites uh, for 30, 40 years have been shifting everything in how this country operates for workers, for families, um, you know, shifting jobs overseas. I mean, everything about the way our business world operates right now has been very intentional and has been done in a way, in a concerted way to undermine worker power and to undermine the ability of families to protect themselves. And so I think that we start to shift that by giving that power back. And we do that with unions and with uh, holding corporations accountable and with more fair tax systems and um, better access to resources for everybody. I'm really happy to hear that because I've been trying to talk to people about this recently, <laughs> more specifically about we need to stop thinking about money as money and start thinking about as expressions of power. Yeah. Which is you can use it to buy current, you can use it to buy influence, you can use it to buy clout, you can use it to buy whatever you oh, want. Absolutely. Yeah. And at a certain point, it's no longer can I buy that house and live in my city? It's now can I buy that politician or can I buy that district or that block or that family or whatever it might end up being? And it's good. I'm glad to hear that as power. So <laughs> I like it. I like it.
And I think that uh, there's there is one more district specific question I got to ask. It's something that popped into my head a while ago when we were interviewing one of your opponents, and it made me think of the the their huge differences in the district. The district is so diverse. It's a small chunk of land, but it's super diverse. So we've got Seward Park, which is full of very wealthy folks with very lovely views looking out of the lake. And then you have people in Rainier Beach who are struggling to stay in their 800 square foot two bedroom home with mm-hmm. six people um there's a huge income disparity so i know that we've got that we've got the rainier beach component of the people that are struggling the most and then we've got that seward park component of people that are far from struggling um how do you reconcile the needs of both communities and what is what is your promise to both of those communities and how you want to serve them in city council I would say I am interested in making sure that everybody has the opportunity to have their priorities heard, you know, and my priority as a council member is going to make sure that we're sharing power with people who are typically not at the table. So I, I am running because I want to make sure that working families, low income folks, communities of color, those who have been marginalized, I kind of hate that term, but, um, that those are the people whose voices we're hearing first, because for me, this is about ensuring equity. And that for me, that means racial equity. And we know that the history of this country means that there are so many different systems of oppression that are keeping some community members from having any access to power. I want to make sure that they have some access to power. So I'm not interested necessarily in talking to the folks. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are people for whom it is very easy to pick up the phone and talk to the mayor, talk to your city council member, talk to whomever you believe can make an easy decision for you. Those folks have access already. I'm interested in serving the folks who don't have access and helping them figure out how to get it. And where can those folks find you? They can find me at www.votefortammy.com. My personal cell phone is 206-396-1276. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Do you have the same handle on Twitter and Facebook? I'm on Instagram, but I don't know how to use it. That's fine. I don't either. Um, Twitter is Tame Morales, S-E-A. <clears throat> Facebook, I don't know, Tame Morales for District 2. Look it up. Something like that. I think I liked all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's Tame Morales, for, I think it's for District 2, right? Cool. Username is the same as Twitter. <laughs> We're trusting uh, resident super fan Andrew, who's hanging out in the background right now. Um, he's so perfect. I mean, thank you for coming in and taking all of our questions. I know we never make this easy on anybody, so don't worry, you're not alone. <laughs> thank you. It's been my pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, again, thanks so much. It's been great. Uh, great answers, I thought. I really enjoyed having you here. Uh, anything you felt like you didn't get to say, you get one last chance. Mm-hmm. We've had it happen. In that case, uh, get your ballots in and vote for Tammy. (laughs) Perfect. Succinct. I like it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Corn, for producing. Thank you, Jay, for joining me as my co-host. And uh, we believe that on the Better Left podcast, this episode is Better Left to Tammy Morales. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tammy. Yay! Thank you. Thanks very much. And totally asked very much. Well, Arnie, (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.